Would you please turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Nehemiah? We are going to be looking at the remaining verses in chapter 5 this morning. Thankful to let you know that next week, Wendell Schrock will be bringing a message to us from Romans on the gospel of Jesus Christ, an appropriate message for when many will be celebrating Palm Sunday. We will have just thought about the gospel at the planned Seder meal that we are, are will be thinking about the gospel at the planned Seder meal we'll be having later the following week. So please be in prayer for Wendell as he prepares over the next several days. This morning, our text comes from Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19. Please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Moreover, from the day that I was put in command to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd, year of King Artaxerxes for 12 years, neither I nor my relatives have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their young men exerted their power over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also took hold of the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my young men were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not require the governor's food allowance, because the slavery was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Father, as we do each week, we come to this hour as a people hungry for the food that can only be provided by your word. So we read this last week in the Pentateuch, we hear the story of the Israelites complaining about the manna that you gave them to eat. Lord, your word is food for our souls. And I pray that if there are any here today who have complained about this food this week, that they would find repentance and forgiveness in Christ. And that this morning you would nourish us especially well from your word, as only you can. No human agent can stand up here and truly feed the souls of God's people. It has to be by the power of your spirit. So we depend on him now. We ask for his help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, I'd wager a guess that there are few phrases that would raise eyebrows at our church faster than the words servant leadership. You know what I'm talking about. 
you hear the servant leader term get thrown out, and you start to get a little sick. You feel maybe some acid reflux coming on, and maybe you throw up a little bit in the back of your mouth. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, perhaps you've recently been raptured from a fundamentalist enclave, or you're still perusing the TGC website like it's going out of style, by the way, too late. The term servant leader has, in the last 20 years or so, become code language. It's become code language for enslaved leader, emasculated leader, servant with a leader name tag, no different from the woman he serves leader. You have no more authority over those sheep than they have over you, leader. Servant leadership is, in fact, oftentimes the Trojan horse to get a spirit of egalitarianism into the city of God, which is why you'll usually hear it used in conversation at Christ the King with a large portion of one's tongue in the cheek. But I want to speak about this issue this morning because the danger here for us, beloved, and the thing that we as a congregation need to be the most aware of is that Satan is not a simple-minded individual. He's oftentimes playing what some people might call 4D chess. I can breathe a heavy sigh when somebody says the words servant leader I can pass the term off as a nuisance, and if I'm not careful, I can tacitly dismiss the fact that leaders are called by God to serve. It's a linguistic throwing out the baby with the bathwater scenario, if you will. The truth of the matter is the Bible is not ambiguous about the role of leaders in the kingdom of God. That is, that they are both to lead and they are to serve. Jesus is crystal clear on this topic in his instructions to his disciples. He says, There arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. Jesus saying to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I, Jesus says, am among you as the one who serves. That's from Luke 22. The temptation for a church like ours is we preach the necessity and the glory of God-ordained and established leadership will be that we end up overcorrecting, and instead we will wind up with not leaders, but tyrants and dictators. Speaking in loaded terms, we need a biblical balance in this area. And in this morning's text, Nehemiah gives us a picture of that balance in the Old Testament. He is a type and a shadow of what Jesus 
would one day be the antitype, what Jesus would one day exemplify. Courageous, masculine leadership coupled to a heart of humility and a willingness to serve. Well, let's look at the first few verses this morning. I'm going to look principally in this first section at verses 14 and 15. Nehemiah has already proved himself in the areas of leadership and humility. In chapter 4, you remember that he was brave and decisive in how he handled the slander of Israel's neighbors, protecting the people of God. In chapter 5, he dealt with the division of the Jewish nation in which he was, as I mentioned last week, in a small way, complicit in. And he displayed meekness by being the first to come out and repent in front of all of the people for his hand in the wrong. In this morning's text, Nehemiah gives us three moreovers. You'll probably see two in your text. You see it there in verse 14 and also in verse 17. What you don't see in Hebrew is that there's one at the beginning of verse 16 as well. So it's almost as if he's saying, moreover, in verse 14, and then in 16, moreover, I laid hold of this work on the wall. And then again, you see the moreover in verse 17. Now let's look at these three, taking this first one here in verses 14 and 15. After Nehemiah mentions that he was appointed governor, this is where we actually learn that from the text. I've mentioned it in weeks past, but here's where he says it. And he tells us how long his first appointment lasted. You see in verse 14, he says that it was 12 years, and that was from 445 to 433 B.C. He's going to have a second appointment later in the book, and we'll get to that towards the end of Nehemiah. After he tells us about the governorship and the first appointment, he informs the reader that he refused to take a food tax from the people. According to Persian law, a satrap or a governor was permitted to demand a regular allowance of provisions from the people that he was over. When you consider what was allowed and the fact that this number was often exceeded and there wasn't really any accountability for whether or not the governors were taking their fair share, this tended to be a heavy burden on the people indeed. The proverb of Solomon so frequently proves true in the case of sinful rulers. When the righteous increase, the people are glad, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. That's Proverbs 29, verse 2. Notice the contrast. Nehemiah, nor his relatives, the Legacy Standard Bible uses the term relatives. The Hebrew term literally means brothers. So you have to ask yourself, what, who are these people? We'll discuss that in just a minute. But none of these people involved with Nehemiah ate the food allowance for all 12 years of his first tenure. The previous regimes and their servants did. And they took the food allowance in addition to a silver tax that they had laid on the people. Now we know two of the former governors over Judea. You'll remember that Sheshbazzar was mentioned in Ezra chapter 5, and Zerubbabel was mentioned in Ezra and also in Haggai chapter 1. But just to make a long story short, and after quite a bit of research, it's doubtful that Nehemiah is directly referring to those two individuals here. There were governors in between these, and Nehemiah and 
for reasons of God's own choosing, had their names neither recorded nor remembered in the scriptures. It reminds me of God's words to Moses when he said, Whoever has sinned against me, says the Lord, I will blot him out of my book. Now, our first lesson on true biblical leadership this morning actually comes in the form of a warning. Those who use their positions to serve themselves will be forgotten. You've heard the old saying that he who wins the war writes the history books. Well, beloved, you know that God ordains the wars, the winners, and the writings. Our congregation needs to remember that God is the author of history. Not many of us here in this church are in jeopardy of taking a whole lot of blue pills, as it were. Some of you all, though, are red pill junkies, and you know it. What we need today is men. We need leaders. We need warriors. We need guys with guts and a heart for glory. We need men who will wear pants with room for air in them. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, there's some powerful truth and a desire for that kind of masculinity. But what is our aim in a desire for true biblical leadership? Paul tells Timothy, our aim should be to please the one that's enlisted us. That's what our aim in true biblical leadership should be. Christian men who see the plays that are being run plays that are robbing us of our created nature and the road to pursue a right kind of masculine glory are going to be tempted by the devil playing this 4D chess to let the clock pendulum swing too hard the other way and that clock casing eventually is going to break. It's going to shatter the whole thing. If we let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be named among us because we got played and we're angry about it. We're no better than the internet pagan gurus trying to tell men what true masculinity is, or the MGTOWs, that stands for men going their own way. The only memory of these groups and us, if we strive for the wrong kind of biblical leadership will be along with the sellers of snake oil. We won't be remembered. Dear brothers, hear the word of God saying to you that secular masculinity is not biblical leadership. If God gets to determine what male and female is because he created them, then he gets to define what leadership is and what servanthood is. Our reactions to the world can never rewrite God's definitions. They merely affirm or deny them. Now, don't miss this. The whole servant leadership thing is really the same error in the opposite direction. It's an attempt to unsay what God hath already said. You probably heard the quote, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Spoken by one Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. 
And today, this is one of the banner phrases of the Big Eva movement. What's hilarious about this phrase is that Zinzendorf's quotation has been immortalized through preachers like myself who continually utilize it. I saw a meme one time. It was a Windows processing window that said, running process, preach gospel, die, be forgotten. Operation failed. Well, he didn't do a very good job if he was wanting to be forgotten. And, and though when you read that phrase, it sounds like, well, that's the servant-like thing to do. It's, that's the servant leader, right? But, but if vanishing from the pages of living memory after a life of service to God really should be our MO, then why does God count it a curse to be forgotten? Why is being remembered in the Bible such a blessing? The psalmist says, It is well with the man who is gracious and lends, who sustains his works with justice, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. Why do so many people in the Bible live in the fear of God and strive for obedience that will be remembered? If you look down at verse 19 for just a second, you'll see that Nehemiah's goal, one of his main goals, was to be remembered before God for his good deeds. My point is this. The servant leader model bothers us because its goal essentially is egalitarianism. But the frequent and equally sinful response of Christian men is to make nature the mission. It's to make nature the mission. This is what those MGTOWs do. The biblical response to either of these is to agree with God about our natures, the way that he created us, and then utilize them for the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. I want you men to consider one thing in application to this. This will help you to see whether or not you've swung too far the wrong direction. Dads today think that they have achieved some great manpower if they can treat their kids like they're some kind of drill sergeant, whipping them into shape. Children are, in fact, called by God to obey their parents. But dad, let me ask you, when is the last time you publicly and loudly complimented your child? particularly your sons. Do you build them up in front of the other brothers here? Or do you chide them thinking that these men will find it entertaining? I understand that men chide each other. I know that's a part of how we relate to one another. But our nature is the pursuit of glory. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I heard over the last several weeks how God the Father, and I never thought about this passage in this way, how God the Father sets the perfect example of addressing your child with praise when he says, and I'll paraphrase here, this is my son, I love him, he pleases me. Publicly spoken in front of all of these people at the start of Jesus' ministry, this is my son, I love him, and he makes me filled with joy. Our boys, dads, should not have to root around in their mind for memories of when you spoke like this. If they do, it's likely that pendulum has gone too far the other way. I'm trying to overcorrect 
to be masculine and strong? How can you have your name remembered, or maybe I would even say, how can you hope, dads, to have your name remembered by God and other men here when your offspring are ready to forget it? If this is you, it's time to come clean about your wrong here and stop pretending in front of your bros at church. A dad who can't build his boys up isn't living according to his nature, and he is not leading. Fear God and repent to your children, and God will cause your name to continue to the praise of Jesus and the upbuilding of his church for generations to come. So in this first moreover that we've looked at, you see what not to do. He said, Nehemiah said, I did not do this. Moreover, I did not accept the governor's food allowance. Let's look at the next two. We'll take these both together. This is verses 16 through 18. He says, here's what I did do. Moreover, I also took hold of the work on the wall. So what Nehemiah is telling us is that he was an active participant in the building process, not merely a standby observer or commander. I stand next to the trumpet. If it needs to be blown, it's my job just to tap him on the shoulder and say, do you see what I see? Blow the trumpet. No, Nehemiah shows that he was a leader willing to get his hands dirty. And not just him, but his young men. I mentioned this earlier. These were likely the governmental servants in his cabinet. They worked alongside of him. But they worked alongside of him by following his example. They were also working on the construction as well. He made them work when they could have been sitting around on a permanent smoke break, like the nine out of ten men wearing neon yellow on the side of the road in Knoxville. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Nehemiah also didn't acquire, he says in verse 16, any land while he was on duty for construction. Clearly, this would have undermined his claim to pure motives. He essentially says, look, I came here to build a wall. But what would it have been like if he was doing some real estate transactions on the side? You would have wondered, why is this guy here? What's this really about? I've heard that George Washington our first president, was a bit of a land shark. I think it was in an early American history class taught by Rush Dooney where I first heard that Washington would handpick and set aside some of the best territories during his explorations for himself and the new American government. At its height, Washington's Mount Vernon estate included almost 8,000 acres. He also amassed an additional 70,000 acres of land covering seven different states, including the District of Columbia. That's a whole lot of territory for one guy. But Nehemiah is not even going to have that as a question in your mind. I'm not speaking or saying anything negative about Washington, but if you've never heard that, the first time I heard that, I was like, really? Wow, that's a whole lot of land grab, man. Nehemiah is not even going to have that question in your minds. He's saying, I'm here to lead and I'm here to serve. I'm not here for anything else. If that wasn't enough, him helping on the wall and not purchasing any land, he gives more details on his extent, on the extent of his sacrifice for God's children. As governor, 
He was responsible to daily feed about 150 people of importance in addition to persons who might drop by from out of town. You see that in verse 17. This is that allowance that he was talking about earlier in the passage. And by the way, it was not an inordinate request for him to take advantage of that allowance. Here's a man from one part of the empire who's been assigned to a years-long mission in another part of the empire. He's supposed to get food not only for his family, but also for his court. How is he supposed to do that? If he does not somehow get some land or seize some property or take food from the people. But Nehemiah refused both, the land and the food. Consider verse 18. Daily provided there was one ox, six sheep, birds, a specific number is not given, and wine in abundance. If Nehemiah served these people for 12 years, and let's say that he just served them one meal a day. It's likely that he did more, but just one meal a day. We're looking at 4,380 oxen, 26,280 sheep, and a lot of birds, and a lot of wine. Now the question is, where did he get the money to pay for all of this? Many of you remember that he was cupbearer to the king, and yes, a faithful cupbearer had a pretty lucrative income. But I want you to stop and think about this for just a minute. This would have cost him an outrageous amount of money. Let's do some calculations adjusted for inflation. Let's look at just the oxen. 4,380 oxen. Let's say that you harvested 400 pounds of food off of one cow. And then you take about $7 per pound, the going rate today, somewhere in that neighborhood. That's over $12 million just for the cows. Spread over 12 years, about a million dollars a year. Consider the love and humility that would have taken to refuse what was rightfully yours. Persian government said, you can take this, it's yours. He refused because he wanted to help build the kingdom of God. And he was adamant that he was not here to be served, but to serve. I really wrestled this week with how to communicate this to you, church. I know that people are going to hear a message like this, and they're going to want to lean one way or the other. Well, all he wants is leaders. Well, all he wants us to be is servants. And my response is yes. The biblical standard is we must have both. And in men, we have to have both in one person. So where's the balance? You've already seen Nehemiah's love and his humility. These are two powerful aspects. You could add the fear of God to that. We've heard him mention that several times. But in verse 18, I want you to notice why he serves them, what he says. He says, Yet for all this, I did not require the governor's food allowance. 
because the slavery was heavy on this people. Nehemiah led the way that he did and served the way that he did because he knew his people. He knew his people. You might ask yourself the question, how did he know that the slavery was so heavy? Because he was a type of a good shepherd. He was not a hireling. It might be objected. Really? Wasn't this the guy whining and dining with the nobles every day, eating and drinking? What does he really know about the slavery of his own people? He knew them well enough to pay for every meal of every one of his cabinet with his own money. He knew enough to get out, of, get out into the hot sun every day and make the wall project happen with his own hands. He knew enough to say no to every opportunity to purchase property in his own country, dashing his own hopes that he may never get to come back here again after the work was done. He's seen fathers put loads on the shoulders of sons and send them up on the wall where they could be pierced by an arrow. He's heard mothers crying out because their daughters have been seized as payments for debts. He's dealt with death threats from the enemy, many of which most of the Jews wouldn't have any knowledge of. But he knows all about these people. He knows their sufferings. He knows what they're going through. And he is leading them, and he is among them. I want, to, I want you to consider for just a minute the power of not just intellectual assent or knowledge, but actually intimately knowing someone. Consider, beloved, how far greater is the chief shepherd's knowledge of each of us in Christ. I'm going to read from Psalm 139. I want you to pay attention to the knowing language. O Yahweh, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Beloved, we will, in a million years of glory, be sitting underneath some tree and trying to ascend to the way in which God knows each of us. And we won't have touched the hundredth part of how deeply we are known in Christ Jesus. Who could lead you better than he who today is simultaneously seated on high as the undisputed king of kings, and yet the Bible says he knows your frame, that you are dust. He knows every hair on your head. He knows how many tears you have cried in your entire lifetime. He knows how long your family's been sick. He knows how many years you've been estranged from that child who left the faith. 
He knows how long you've waited for a spouse. He knows how often it seems like other people avoid spending any time with you. He knows the reason for your chronic pain. He knows why your baby has to have surgery. Church, he knows. I want to press this as far as I possibly can. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Listen to this next part. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Think for just a minute about that inner Trinitarian connectedness there. You, you can't describe that. It's impossible to fathom how the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. Yet Jesus says, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I know you. I know you. Like that. You think for a minute that Jesus has lost sight of what you were going through. Yet he knows us. He knows us in a more powerful way than we can understand. Beloved, there are some of you here who have heard all of your life that God is good. I've mentioned that anchor of truth many times. But do you feel in the midst of your problem when someone says God is good? Yes, but I don't feel like he knows what I'm going through. If you could walk away with one thing today, holding in this hand the goodness of God, and in the other, the fact that you are known by God beyond your imagination, you can face anything. I want to speak again to the men, the husbands, the dads. Do you want to lead like Christ led? Do you want to serve like he serves? I can encourage you to love. I can encourage you to be humble. But I want to ask you, do you know your people? Not just know them, but are intimately connected to them. You can't lead and you won't know how to serve those that you do not truly know. Take her out on a date, brothers. Take your kids on walks. Look at your daughters in the face when you speak to them. Dads, do something with your son side by side. Heard that this week and it made a lot of sense. You know, women relate face to face and conversation, sharing ideas, eye contact, things like that. Men relate side by side. You know, we play sports, we cut trees, build a birdhouse, something like that. We work together, and that's how we relate to one another. Brothers, what are you going to do this week to get to know your people? I want to give briefly two other ways that men can serve by leading that I can pull from this passage. Continue to think about knowing people, and because of how you know them, God blessing you with the resources to be able to serve the people that you know and love and care about. First, don't be afraid of great wealth. I quoted 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 last week, which says that Yahweh makes poor and 
rich. If it is entirely God's prerogative to make both poor and rich, then being wealthy is not a sin. If God makes wealthy, then you have no more control over that than you do of your hair color, birth mother, marriage partner, etc. Paul taught us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice he didn't say the money itself, but the love of money. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. And we all say, amen. So don't try and serve God and money. Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first fruits of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. Now, where did all that blessing come from? From God. But why does knowing matter so much? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you see in this morning's story, God gave Nehemiah a lot of treasure. And Nehemiah showed where his heart was by putting his money there because he knew these people. Some of you think that the only spiritual way to serve is to become a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist. Perhaps there are some here who should begin to pray that God would bless you financially beyond your wildest dreams so that you can serve the church of Jesus Christ. I'll probably get in trouble for this. But comedian Chris Rock once said, Wealth is not about having a lot of money. It's about having a lot of options. Now think about that for a minute. That's true. That's true. I want to serve the kingdom of Jesus, and I want to serve it in manifold ways. God, would you bless me so these people that are suffering around me, the ones that I know, I can help? I've mentioned before that Tammy and I had a season of life in which the Lord was leading me to finish undergrad work in order to pursue seminary. And at that season of life, we were limited financially. But a very wealthy member of our local church who was very unassuming, he's one of those millionaires, you could pass him a hundred times and you'd think he's just a good old country boy. He doesn't have more money in the bank that he can keep in his wallet. But he was also a very kingdom-minded and generous man. He secretly paid for my entire education. At the time, that was about over $10,000. And he didn't ask for anything in return except that his name be kept a secret so he could have his reward in heaven. What an example of, as the King Hall, King's Hall guys call, a city father. I mean, that's, that's a leader. That's one who stoops to serve. He uses his wealth to bless the church. Part of the reason I'm here preaching today is because of that man's use of his wealth. Which, this will bring me to the second point I wanted to make, speaking of finances, don't be afraid to build bigger barns. Now, if you were asleep, you may have just woke up. Did you say build bigger barns? Jesus told us not to build bigger barns. Wrong. He did not tell you not to build bigger barns. He is so pleased with people who build bigger barns for the furtherance of his kingdom. Here's the parable briefly. The land of a rich man was very productive. 
And he began to reason to himself, saying, you'll notice a theme here, personal pronouns. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, notice the Lord's response, who will own what you have prepared? What is this parable all about? It's about greed. It's about greed. My stuff, my barns, my soul, ease, drink, merriment, all for me. But listen again to the opening sentence. The land of the rich man was very productive. Where did that come from? It came from God. And what was God's intention for that productivity? That the rich man be rich towards God. So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Brethren, some of you need to take the wealth that God has given you and use it as Nehemiah did to bless the people of God by creating safety and industry and purpose for others and the expansion of the kingdom. Proverbs says, the wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Can that not be a stout and life-giving, wealth-producing family economy? What would God have you to begin to build now that would bless the generations of the righteous to follow after you and that God's house be built up and your name be remembered as one who served God well with his money? Well... Nehemiah concludes this chapter and this account of his deeds by uttering one of his breath prayers. He says briefly, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now we ask ourselves the question, what's going on here? Why the prayer at the end of this list of things? We can dismiss the idea that it's showmanship. This was private. This is between he and the Lord. He's not asking for bragging rights here. He's not trying to win a benevolence award. He isn't playing politics. And this has nothing to do with the claim of sinless perfection or to argue for entrance into glory based upon his works. This is an appeal to God for the favor of God. One commentator said, Nehemiah is not claiming merit but professing sincerity. That concludes the passage very well. He's been making these appeals to us. No, I am here to serve these people. Moreover, I did this to serve them. Moreover, I did this. Moreover, I did this. God, I've sought to please you by loving my neighbors. I know them. I live among them and I serve them. You gave me great wealth and great status. Lord, neither of which I threw away, but I've used both for the betterment of your people. Everyone around me benefited from how my leadership served. Oh God, please remember me. He wants the favor of his God. And honestly, it takes guts to pray like that. But Moses did. David did. Elijah did. 
Jesus did. Building on our Ask, Seek, Knock theme over the last couple of weeks. This is risky. Do your good deeds matter to God when you come and pray to him? You better believe they do. Nobody is going before the throne with all of the things that they've done for God free from sin. Look at all the perfect things that I did for you, Father. God knows our hearts. And by the way, we get in this idea as Calvinists that everything that we do is sinful at the core and we're so horrible. And Yet we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, not trashy works, not refuse works. We were created for good works, which God ordained before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. Why? So we could bring him glory. He wants to see good works in us. But speaking of leaders who serve, husbands know their actions affect their prayers. Show your wife honor as the fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. In addition, Jesus told us that whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you are of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Beloved, when we do as the Lord has asked us to do, when we walk in step with the Spirit and honor the Spirit, then we can bring an order and an argument in our prayers to the Lord just as all the saints of old have. If we're doing what God requires of us, as best as fallen people can, faithful to perform our duties, you can address God with those things in prayer. Lord, as Moses might have said, I obeyed you and I brought this people out of Egypt. It's been rough. Now, Lord, we're here in front of an ocean and our enemies are behind us and they're going to kill us. Lord, you brought me here. I need your help. Do something. Remember me. Do you see? That's exactly Nehemiah's appeal here. Lord, we're surrounded on all sides. North, south, east, west. Everywhere I go, there's enemies. And I've got enemies inside these walls. There's even people in our midst enslaving one another. Lord, I came here to do what you gave me to do. Lord, I've done it. Lord, I've not been perfect, but I have striven and I've given. Lord, you got to do something. i got a need. Lord, we have spoken up on behalf of all of the children in Clinton when we saw those grooming books in the library. Lord, we were not silent about this wickedness. We're now three meetings in with these people, and we're facing significant opposition. They're going to... They're going to bust people in, Lord. Lord, don't forget us. Don't leave us here alone. We need you to show up tomorrow night. We need you. Beloved, God desires men who will lead and serve in the fear of him, seeking his favor in this way. He doesn't serve the people under him by compulsion, but willingly, as God would have him, because he knows his people. He doesn't lead simply to squash the blue pills in front of him 
or display his power or take his own dominion, but because he aims to please the one who enlisted him. He is neither a woman-worshipping white knight nor an uncontrollable MGTOW. He is neither a card-carrying SJW nor a red-pill-swallowing patriarchal tyrant. He neither drinks the Kool-Aid of the TGC nor every juicy controversy discussed on Canon Plus. The man of God who both leads and serves is only concerned with the approval of the God of his salvation. He longs to lead as that father created him to lead. He longs to serve as he has seen his elder brother Christ demonstrate service in the scriptures. In times of trouble, he wants to be remembered by God and wishes to have his prayers answered. And one day, he wants to bow before the king of kings and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the leader who serves. These are the people who will be remembered by God and men and will have a seismic impact on the furthering of the kingdom. I ask you, church, would you be one of them? Let's pray. Father, the task that you have given us, we acknowledge is infinitely beyond our grasp. How can we both lead as you created us and yet serve just like Christ taught us to? We have been taught so poorly in this area. And I pray that Nehemiah's example this morning has been an encouragement to each of us of how we can humble ourselves, deny privileges, give up our riches and even our time, get to know how many ever number of people there be underneath us, be filled with love and a desire to serve them and lead them well as you have called us to. Oh, we want to honor Jesus and we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear on that final day, as you see each of us, this is my child, I love him, and he pleases me, just like you did with your son. We know by the power of Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit that that is not only possible, but inevitable. So let us see it now in our days as you work through us. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.